Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. Okay, folks, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. My name is Adam Jones. And I'm Cameron Horine. And we are uh, back off location today, Cameron. We're uh, sitting in our home office. Yep. A little, the, um, I'm going to hesitate to say with the crew that works in here that we're in a controlled environment. But we are in as controlled of an environment as we possibly can uh, <laughs> for noise today. And uh, our topic today, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, folks are, are we're winding down our agronomy season for the year. And we're, we're starting to think about uh, fall fertility decisions. We're starting to think about logistics for next year. Um, those conversations happen. Those thoughts happen before the crop even comes out of the field. And so I, we thought it was a good time to, to get somebody in here who's kind of on top of all those things and, and kind of price trends, what's going on in the marketplace. And so today our guest is Chris DeMoss. Uh, Chris is the director of our MFA plant foods division. And Chris, you want to give us a little short background on yourself, kind of where you came from, how long you've been around and how long you've been around the industry? Yeah, so I started with MFA in 1995, and I started in a market expansion division, which really in those days we sold primarily fertilizers to other retailers. Okay. And it would be in Kansas, in Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, Arkansas, Iowa, Illinois, Missouri, New Mexico. So we covered the Midwest, and, yeah. and um, I did that from 95 to 2000. Okay. And when I was doing that, we also, you know, we would arrange the freight. So I had exposure, not just to fertilizer selling or trading, but also to freight and arranging mm -hmm. the trucking. Right. So then from 2000 to basically 2002, I merchandised grain and I was primarily soybeans at that point for MFA. So I did that for two years. And then in 2002, I came back to plant foods and was became the procurement manager so i did primarily almost all the buying and i did that until 2016 then we moved into the uh, director of plant foods i got you and the director of plant foods also has responsibility for our transportation group well that makes sense those two things kind of go hand in hand right i mean you, they do like you know you people people don't think of freight as a commodity but it is you know one of the oldest commodity businesses in the world is freight yeah. In fact, you know, we have these uh, OTCs, you know, paper trades for fertilizer really originated out of the freight industry. Hmm. So if you, there's a, a company called uh, FIS and it's Freight Investor Services. And they're based out of Amsterdam, which of course is a, you know, a pretty old uh, point in the world for freight trading. Yep. Right. And so those derivatives or those uh, over-the-counter trades, you know, uh, were developed by those kind of people because that's what they do in the shipping industry. Huh. You know, they'll uh, lay off risk that way. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because, yeah, a lot of folks you don't think about, you think about freight as the 18-wheeler sitting in your driveway, not, you know, not as, not as a commodity that you have to, you know, trade on the open market. Right. It's a silent component of the value. You oh, know? for sure. Whenever you get, you know, you buy some whatever in the grocery store, you know, it's going to list... On the back, at least in the U.S., you know, it's got this many calories. It's got these vitamins. Well, but it never breaks down what the cost of the product is. Right. You know, for fertilizers, for grain, for so much of it, you know, freight is there. Yeah. We just, it's not always known or discussed. For sure. And a lot of that stuff has no value unless it's 
in the right location. <laughs> well, right. You know, <laughs> you know? I, I, we've been on a big kick, and I talk a lot about infrastructure. Yeah. And, you know, we just take it for granted. You know, I put it this way. If you go back to 1970, what would you guys say the average yield per acre was on corn? It doesn't have to be right. 110. 110. Okay, what is it today? Uh, 180. Say All right, so, so we're 70 bushels more. At least we're probably, you guys are talking about Missouri. Yeah, yeah, right? Missouri. Yeah. Okay, right. so nationally it's grown. Sure. Yeah. You know, so what was the size of a truckload in 1970? 25 tons. Yep. What's a truckload today? The same. 25, 25 tons. <laughs> yeah. How big was a barge in 1970? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my point is we're yeah. growing a larger crop, but we haven't grown the infrastructure to move that crop. Yeah. And if you can't get grain to market, it has no value. That's right. It means nothing. I, I realized that one year I traded wheat for MFA when I was in the grain division, and I quickly realized that either wheat is worth something or it is worth nothing. Yep. Yep. You know, because yep. of the quality. But freight's for also sure. a part of that, too. Absolutely. And, I, and we definitely take it for granted. You know, I grew up with just junk grain hauling equipment, but we literally have a Mississippi River terminal <clears throat> nine miles from our farm. Right. You know, and you don't, and until you get out of your own little bubble, you don't understand that, like, these multi-million dollar on-farm grain storage systems, like, are just not as necessary when you have those kind of luxuries. When you have it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And we're like, I think in Missouri as a whole, and I'm, I'm, there are, you know, kind of logistical deserts of Missouri that, mm -hmm. you know, have bad roads and no good way to get there. And I understand that, but we do have two fairly major river systems that, uh, well, really, we, we have on. three. Sure. We have three. We have the Arkansas River. Yep. Uh, we have the Missouri and we have the Mississippi, you know, and, and all of them, you know, function in a different way. Sure. Right. Sure. But but we're a little spoiled, I, you know. I guess compared to North Dakota, oh sure, or somebody like that, you know. Right, I guess right. when, when you like kind of zoom way yeah. out and just look at the logistics of things, that yeah. we're a little spoiled in the fact that we're all yeah, we're spoiled. Short but you know, from a trading perspective or a merchandising perspective, it makes it really tricky. I always say if you trade the Missouri market, you know, you can trade any market because if you think about it, you know, let's just take potash for example. We've got imports that are coming in from around the world that comes up this river system on the Arkansas, the Mississippi, the Missouri. You've got the Canadian tons that are coming down. So you're we're kind of at the crossroads. It's yeah. the same thing for anhydrous, you know, East Lake versus West Lake, Western production. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, it it's a blessing, but it also adds, you know, uh, a twist that other places just don't have. Right, right. No, that's exactly right. So... Diving off into fertilizer a little bit, um, I think maybe first you ought to just kind of give us um, a quick overview of kind of what our infrastructure is as far real quick, you know, and and then kind of um, how that works. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit, but but how does the how does most of our product get here essentially? So we've got two terminals MFA that we okay. we have our LLC at Brunswick as well. So we've got Crothersville. And Crothersville is really comprised of three terminals. We have one that sits right on the river okay. for dry. Uh -huh. We have a liquid terminal there that's, you know, f that pipe runs out to the river and is supplied that way. Okay. And then we have an inland terminal at Haytai. Okay. And it's dry. And it's served by the BN Rail as well. Okay. okay. So when I say Crothersville, I'm talking about really all three. All right, and, right. We have, and we have liquid storage there too. Okay. The other terminal that we own, and we've owned it the longest, 
In fact, we built it in 1969. It's uh, Palmyra. Okay. But technically, it's on the South River, you know. Right. Uh, closer probably to Hannibal, but we always call it Palmyra. Sure. Yeah. When that facility was built, we actually um, manufactured uh, micro, a little micro manufacturing. We made a hom- homogeneous product, like triple 13, 624, 24. Okay. I got and you. When, when that was built, it was built in conjunction with that CF anhydrous facility that's there. And, um, of course, in those days, we were part owner of CF. You know, I think we had about a 5% ownership of CF Industries. I got you. a cooperative. So we've got Crothersville. We've got Palmyra. Those are both served by the Mississippi. Now, uh, we also have an LLC with Brunswick River Terminal, and it's on the Missouri. And that's Brunswick, Missouri. And they've got dry and liquid. Okay. So they're serviced by barge and by rail. They're on the NS rail. Okay. Palmyra also receives rail. Also receives rail. Be in rail. Okay. And then the third place that we lease space from is in Tulsa. It's at Port 33, Inola. And we've been there for a long time. We've leased space there. I started in 95, and we we had been there for several years before that. So currently, we lease three bins there, and it's served on the Arkansas River. Now, the Arkansas River, you know, relative to the Mississippi relative to the Missouri, you know, they're all really slightly different systems. The Arkansas River is lock and dam, so it's navigable year-round. You know, the Mississippi to Crothersville is navigable Mm -hmm. year-round. When you get to St. Louis, then you start getting into a lock system. And, you know, north of St. Louis to Palmyra, there are several locks. So there's winter implications, ice implications there. And then, of course, the uh, Brunswick's on the Missouri, and it doesn't have a lock and dam system. So it's more about the flow that comes out of reservoirs from the north, mm-hmm. you know, the northern and the upper Missouri. Right. So would you say, uh, as far as kind of like percentage of our dry product that we're pulling into our system, essentially, uh, a significantly high percentage of that is coming up the river system? Yeah, correct? we're barge truck pretty much anymore. Okay. You know. <laughs> we're talking about the crossroads in Missouri, you know, do you know how many rail lines we've got in Missouri? I do not. Less than we used to, obviously. But. Well, we've got six major rail lines, right? Okay. BN, UP. Okay. Um, so, you know, even that gets diluted, right? So right. we've got all these, you know, we've got NS, KCS. Yeah, you're right. They've merged over the years. The actual yeah. trackage is probably similar. I know there's been some, you know, sightings and short lines closed, but... Right. But as that has changed and consolidated, their rates, you know, they tend to not fluctuate like a barge rate or a truck rate. You know, they're sort of insulated from that. They sort of get, you know, almost a monopolistic, you know, way of pricing. Yeah. And all that to say, that's really reduced the amount of rail that we've taken. You know, like when I started in 2002, you know, doing the buying, this time of year, we were getting quite a bit of our phosphates via rail out of Florida. And maybe we would get, I don't know, 15, 20,000 tons that way. We yeah. We don't get anything like that. Now. Really? Yeah. Hmm. About the only thing left that we do with rail would be potash in a significant way that comes gotcha. down from Canada. Yeah. And that's just a logistics with the, that's where the mine is, you know, right? Yeah. They're landlocked yep. and they're yep. going to get it, you know, one way or the other out of Canada. It's Correct. coming by a rail. I got right. you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, We've kind of covered some of the dry and how we're bringing in some of the dry and liquid. Um, let's talk anhydrous for a little bit. And, and you you touched on it earlier, uh, but can, can you kind of 
give us the high points of, of the pipeline system and, and kind of where that's coming from and what that system looks like. You mentioned an east and west leg. Yeah, I think, you know, to give some background, when, when you look at MFA, we're different than other ag retailers, maybe not so much from Missouri, but through the Midwest. You know, our largest form of nitrogen is urea and then anhydrous and then UAN. If you went to other parts of the Midwest, it'd really be the flip of that. They would yeah, use U, UAN, then anhydrous, then urea. So we're a little bit unique in that regard. The other thing, even in my time, we've gone from you know, maybe 20, 30,000 tons of anhydrous that we'd use in the retail system to 80,000. So we've made a shift over the last 20 years and grown that anhydrous business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, now to talk about the infrastructure, you know, that's changed a little bit too. There's been consolidation. You know, there's been things that have closed. The, the history of nitrogen production is a little bit interesting. If you ever, it sounds like a boring book to read, but there's this book called The Alchemy of Air, and it tells you how they figured out how to get nitrogen out of the air. Yeah, and that's what we that you know they turned into anhydrous. Right, right. Harbor Bosch system came out yep. of Germany in the early 1900s, and that's a system we've used since then. It was developed slightly before World War One, and then of course they can make munitions from it. Right. So all that to say, you know, that's coal driven, whereas you know you can also use that process with natural gas, but it's carbon based. And so in the U.S., when you look at where these manufacturing facilities are for nitrogen, they tend to be, of course, where the natural gas is. Mm-hmm. You know, the oil like in Oklahoma and Texas. But it was also developed during the Second World War to build munitions. And so after the war, when companies got done with, you know, when the country didn't need the same kind of munitions, they sold those facilities to oil companies. Yeah. And then oil companies got tired of it. I guess it wasn't, you know, as sexy as... <laughs> gas and they right. decided to spin it off and so that's kind of how we get into the modern age of of uh you know fertilizer companies all that to say that's why those places are in oklahoma okay that's why those places are in texas now they developed a pipeline system to move those tons away but for years you know it was really tough to make a living and you know they just that pipeline they it it didn't get the attention that it needed, and little by little, that asset just wore out, and it's so cost prohibitive to to replace it that they just shut it down. Right. So what we call the West Leg that serviced the majority of the U.S. production, certainly in the Midwest, that avenue was cut off several years ago. Okay. All right. Now there's still an East Leg, and the East Leg's really kind of east of the Mississippi. Okay. It comes in as serviced by Donaldsonville, Louisiana, or you can inject uh, tons that were be imported into the country. Okay, I gotcha. So the East Lake really then feeds more into Indiana, Illinois, that area. Right. And really, that's about the only way. You know, there's really no production over there for for uh, nitrogen. Right. So they're trying to pull it all in. They're trying to pull it that way, and it's so far, you know, from Enid or Verdigree, Oklahoma. Yeah. That you know, rail and and truck is just, uh, you know, it, it's cost prohibitive for. Sure. Sure. So where does most of ours come from then? Are we pulling it directly from Oklahoma on a truck? Yeah. So most of the stuff that we that we get either comes from Verdigree, Oklahoma, Coffeeville, Kansas, um, okay. Enid, Oklahoma, Prior, Oklahoma. Those are the primary sources. You know, when, there's some manufacturing up at Beatrice or Hoag, Nebraska, 
but it's also cold storage, which is to yeah. mean they, you know, someone will manufacture it and then take it up there and put it in storage. But the bulk of our stuff comes from uh, the West, those Oklahoma locations. Sure. Now, Palmyra that I referenced earlier, CF still owns that uh, anhydrous tank up there. Okay. It's it's part it's on that pipeline. It's on that East Lake pipeline, just okay. like Herman. I got you. So they're serviced that way. Now the thing at Palmyra several years ago, they changed the cooling heating system so that they could uh, CF could bring in barge quantities. They also use it as a shuttle. So they'll pipe tonnage up there and then transload it into a barge and take it further north. Okay. Because they don't they, they're certain up their transit time and see. Sure, sure. Hmm. Because I mean and the whole time you're moving hazardous cargo basically. So I mean that's that's, right. that's and, and again we're talking about rail and how that's kind of priced itself out of the market. Right. It's certainly done that with anhydrous. Okay. Yeah. You know, not only is the freight really high, the car availability is not there. You know, it's not just your standard yeah. car. Yeah. You know, the, the, and yeah. the specs are a lot higher. They're oh. expensive. Right. You can't get the kind of turns on it. You know, and if, yeah. as you as we know, the anhydrous season's what? 15, 20 days in the fall, maybe 30 yeah. days in the spring. So, you know, for them to really get utilization out of those cars is just impossible. Yeah. So it's, it's a very costly proposition. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's what actually what I was going to have you kind of just touch on next was, um, you know, we've, we've worked hard and we can work hard. The logistics work and, and spreading out some of the, you know, the phosphates and the potash applications um, over a bigger season. Mm-hmm. But the stress on that anhydrous system has to be, I mean, from your perspective, pretty astronomical because you're right. We've got I'm what I feel like is less than two weeks a year when you're right. actually using this stuff. So you're building... How many dollars worth of infrastructure to utilize it for a month a year? <laughs> well, I mean that's the problem with ag, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's the same thing with the combine. Yeah, the only combine, you know, yeah, it's harvest once. <laughs> Correct, that's true. right? You know, yeah. so it's a similar kind of thing. That's just, you know, it's magnified in agriculture. I think it's that way in probably a lot of other industries, you know, but it's just more intense with what we do. Right. Yeah. But but to talk about that, yeah, you know, let's just put in perspective. Yeah, I'm, I say we are using 80,000 tons. We only have about 10,000 tons of storage. Of that 80, we only use maybe 20 in the fall. You know, that's a good year. Right. right? So we're turning that space twice in the fall. And then when we get to the spring, you know, we got the balance of 60,000 with 10,000 tons storage. We're turning that thing five times. We're turning that five times, like you see, in about a two-week, three-week window. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of moving parts. Um, when that's going on right Right. and you know how the season plays out will vary you know if the worst thing that can happen from a logistics point of view is that you know we all open up at the same time you know generally the anhydrous movement kind of starts heavier in the south and makes its way to the north but if we get rain it's all cold in the south and then all of a sudden the north and the south that open up at the same time that's when we have a lot of challenges. Right. It's not just us. It's the whole system. I mean, you know, just like with everything, again, when you think about freight, you don't think about the cost, but but the number of, of trucks is finite too. Yeah. You know, there's only so many trucks. Right. And if you There's gotta, only so many rail cars. Yeah, and if you got to drive all the way to Oklahoma to get something, it's not like you're utilizing that truck for 20 minutes either. Right. 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 We're talking about, you know, an eight-hour haul. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, and then when you get there, guess what? Everyone else is using anhydrous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so then and you're the line the can be, you know, yeah. six, seven hours too. Yeah. So yeah. at and, times. Yeah. And anhydrous is a little different because it's not like you can pull two loads. You know, when we're thinking about fertilizer or grain, you know, you can maybe be shipping grain or fertilizer right, one deadhead. way and you're deadheading. Yeah, a that's lot. what we call so, those deadheads when you're exactly. you hauling down there empty. Right. Yeah, you're so right. that, the logistics of that makes it, you know, it just backs up too because you're not being able to pull two commodities in one trip. That's right. You know, and, and, and remember, you know, the more, the, the further you get away from the dry product, the more specialized the equipment becomes. You know, Manhydrus is very specific equipment. You would only use that to haul propane. And even then we have to do some conversions on the trucks, mm-hmm. you right. know, to haul propane. Okay. You know, liquids a little bit different. There's more liquids, but again, right. it's pretty specific. But you know, that's why that's why dry is the commodity of the world. You know, I always say, you know, why they don't use anhydrous in India? It's because you can't hand broadcast anhydrous. Right. <laughs> right. Correct. You know, they don't right. have the infrastructure yeah. for it. Yeah, the U.S. is the only place in the world that uses direct application anhydrous. Why? Because we're the only ones that have the sophisticated infrastructure that can support and allow that. Yeah, that makes a whole same lot thing. Of sense. Same thing with UAN. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's just not quite as complicated, and it's very hard to hand broadcast too. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So switching from anhyd or switching from nitrogen for for just a little bit, um, I want you to go in uh, to kind of as we go through our, our major commodity products and kind of tell me. We've alluded to some of this, but tell me kind of where it comes from. And so we'll start with potash. Mined product, where does most of it, or I mean, are we importing most of that? Is Or you mentioned Canada. Where does most of our potash that ends up getting spread in Missouri come from? So potash is very specific. There's just a few places in the world that have the, the uh, ore body. Okay. Canada. Yep. Russia. Some uh, in Israel. Okay. Really the, easy places, other than Canada, really easy places to get to, it seems like. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> yeah, but, but believe it or not, you know, um, I've been I've been to mines in Canada, I've been to the mines in Russia. Yeah. And they've got the infrastructure there, too. Really? You know, it's, uh, Solicomps is where a lot of it's produced, and, you know, that may not, if you think about it, it's salt, right? Yeah. So, if you've ever heard of stroganoff, most people have heard of beef stroganoff. Really, stroganoff was a minerals trader, you know, before the Russian Revolution. And those mines were being developed in Russia back then. They just didn't know they had potash at that point. Hmm. Um, but it's conventional mining in that, you know, you drill a hole down to the ground and, you know, you chip the stuff out and bring it back up and make potash. Okay. Hmm. So to answer the question of where does most of our potash come, primarily it comes from Canada, uh, out of Saskatchewan, that province, okay. out of, you know, um, Saskatoon is kind of the hub for that. Okay, and then and then uh, Russia, and Belarus, Minsk. Okay, uh, that area has you know part part of an ore body as well, and, and then and then some from Israel. And I understand that uh, I understand that it's a <clears throat> commodity product, but you know we talked about freight earlier. As far as bringing that stuff in versus stuff from Canada, how how is that price the same? It seems a lot easier to dump it on a train and ship it down here from Canada than it does to mine it. And well, you see me, where I'm going with yeah, that? Yeah, I do. But let me let me use the example because I don't know the freights on. You know, it's embedded in the value. Sure. Right? Okay. But I can tell you this, and we'll talk about phosphates. You know, when like 
a vessel, vessel freights from North Africa, which would be Morocco, to uh, New Orleans would be around 14 to 20, 14 to 16 dollars a metric ton. Okay. So we'll just, we'll just call it 16. Okay. Just to put that, you know, to take phosphates from, you know, Tampa, Florida, get it to the port of Florida, which is probably going to cost you 10 for rail. Mm-hmm. And then you got to transload it onto a vessel. They mm-hmm. call it a cross vessel, cross gold vessel. That cross gold vessel is probably going to run 25 to $30. Okay. So just getting that vessel from Tampa to New Orleans, we'll just say it's $30 versus taking a vessel from Morocco. Boy, that just doesn't make sense, though, Chris. I mean, <laughs> I don't like things that don't make logical sense. Well, they all make sense in that the freight's going to find its value. Now, there's yeah. this thing called the Jones Act, you know, and look it up. It, it is protectionism for U.S. freight. So that's okay. part of the issue. Okay. But the other thing is the backhauls. You think about it. What are they going to backhaul back over to Florida? Yeah, that's true. You know, it's like the anhydrous. Right. You're dead ending it. Yeah. You know, seaborne ocean freight, there's, you know, they're going to bring it over here. They're going to get grain. They're going to get other bulk commodities. And they're going to take it back to Africa. So, you know, people yeah. will say that. You say it doesn't yeah. make sense. Go out and look at, uh, you know, I always use Google Flights. But go look at, you know, what it costs to fly to, like, Los Angeles or New York compared to what it was going to cost to, to Bozeman, Montana. Or someplace that's not as far. Yeah, right. You know, that's true. In, in a lot of ways, we don't question that. You know, you go, well, it's cheaper because they have bigger planes, they have more volume that goes to. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's okay. all all freight is that way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you explained that well because when you led with that, I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, you mean freight? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I was when when you know when I don't I don't call it booking a flight. I call it booking freight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much you know, true. That's right. But but it is. Yeah. I mean, it's all things are that way. Yeah. Okay, so onto the phosphates. Um, again, a mined product. I assume in most cases, where where does most of that come from? Well, you know, again, much like potash, you know, there's only so many places in the world that have phosphate deposits, and in the U.S., we've got several. This, but the largest uh, is in Florida. Okay, you know, there's some out in Conda, Idaho, Rock Springs, Wyoming, that area. So those are. Th- you know, the really the spots, but Florida is the big one. Okay. Um, and then you get into, you know, Russia has a deposit. You know, Russia's got a lot of natural resources like the U.S. Sure. And then yep. Morocco. Morocco would be the a really large one. Okay. And those are the biggest influences. Now, there's some that comes out of Mexico. There's some that comes out of Australia. You know, but when you're talking about the big hitters, it's it's, sure. it's Florida. Yeah, just a handful Morocco. of places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... As far on the phosphate side of things, it seems like there's a little more differentiation. Is is that fair? Because differentiation you know, in what regard? As far as yeah. multiple products, there's companies making their own kind of proprietary type blends. It seems yeah. like, mm-hmm. um, whereas commodity potash is commodity potash, right? I mean, there's not there's a little bit there's a few things going on, but right. it's mostly you're buying double O sixty, right? Yeah. Um, sixty two. Yeah. yeah. Right. Whereas as phosphates, you know, there's, you know, MAP, there's MAP, there's DAP, DAP. there's TSP, there's um, premium products. Um, right. When you, know. you go, then you go into the premium blends that have micronutrients in them. How do those, how does that process, is that all coming from the same place or how does? So when you look at, you know, if you think about phosphates, they're a little bit different and you guys could speak to this better than I can, but there's certain soil types that do better with MAP. 
right? Versus DAP. Yep. You know, so when you look at it globally, there's just that need, right? Okay. And so triple, you know, 0460 is sort of developed in that same way. So they're really the primary ones are, are DAP, MAP, and, and TSP, right? right? Yep. And so, you know, it depends what geography you are and where you are in the world and what your soil types are, you know, and what you're going to need. You don't see that kind of variance with the with the potash need. Yeah. So the manufacturing is pretty much done of those products everywhere. Now, you know, back in the day, we used to produce MAP, DAP, and Triple in Florida. But the rock quality has diminished so much that it becomes harder for them to make triple. In fact, we don't make any triple now in the U.S. Most of the triple comes from Lebanon, Tunisia, okay. um, Morocco. Okay. You know, um, we're still able to produce MAP. We're still able to produce DAP, which seems odd because, you know, it's 046 versus 1846. But that's right. That's how it works. Okay. You know, the chemistry of it, you know. I don't. I well, don't yeah, know. I'm not a chemist, yeah. so yeah, I'm not we're, gonna, not, we're not yeah. going to question. I Honestly, think I'm not going to call you out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I can tell you, but no, but there, there's just reasons in the manufacturing the PO2, P205, and all that stuff. Yeah. But right. So, so then you're talking about these enhanced products. Well, you know, I set that up because the rock quality is diminished. Twenty years ago. Cargill bought um, a facility from Farmland, and at the time it was called Norse Kedro. We know where it is Yara now in Florida. And the rock quality was starting to diminish. They also wanted to differentiate themselves from the market. So one of the things they did was create what we would call MES in that product line. Okay. And, you know, they have MESZ, S10. But one of the primary drivers for that was the rock quality was starting to diminish, and they had to find... Uh, a you know, other products to produce and create. Okay. And so that was really the origin of it. You know, you don't have a massive amount of product variability in the U.S. just because, or in the world, just because, you know, again, it takes, there's only so much storage. There's only, right. you know, there's only so much freight you can haul it in. The more specialized it becomes, you can get that chopped up. It's just harder to sell or merchandise in the world. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Huh. Interesting. It's an interesting because you would, I guess, lo logic would, again, with, with me and the logic, but logic would say that you developed those products because you needed that micronutrient influence. But it's interesting to hear the perspective of we, we made those product differentiations because uh, because of logistical issues and like, oh, no, we're not mining the same quality stuff that we used to be, we, but we better church it up a little bit. Right. You know. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, it just depends what you know, you say logic. Well, it makes sense logically why they're doing what they do. Yeah. You're just reference point and knowledge of it. Didn't different. Point. Completely you different perspective. To, to, yep. Correct. To do that. You know, yep. there's a lot of things that would make a lot of sense to do, but the execution of it becomes very yeah. know, challenging. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about price trends um, because honestly, this is fascinating to me. So like, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't think like commodity, for, but yeah, it, so, um, but before we run out of time, I do want to, I want to make, I want to get into price trends. We saw, and, and feel free to cover any, you know, obviously we had logistic, logistics issues everywhere within the last 18 months. COVID sure. has, you know, it, it gets blamed for everything. And, and now it, it's becoming a, the joke that it gets blamed mm -hmm. for everything. But if you want to kind of cover any, any logistical issues, and then we saw some really, really price lows in those commodity markets um, fairly recently here and, and kind of walk us through the, the 
what led to that and then kind of transition that maybe into where we are now and, and how those are tied together? So, you know, I don't know about logistics issues. Ironically, you talk about COVID being the blame for everything. COVID probably helped out our situation logistically in that, you know, a lot of other economies, a lot of other things in the economy slowed down. So what did that do? That allowed more truck availability. Okay. Yeah. Yep. You know, so in a way, you know, if you went back um, in 19, we were really struggling with trucks for a lot of reasons. You know, that there was just a lot of demand. You know, that flooding that occurred early in 19, you know, they had to repair the roads in the north. That took a lot of the hopper trucks out of play for us. Right. Right. So that year we were really challenged. And if we had continued on that 10 trend through 20, it would have been really tough. Now, there's other things that have disrupted and sure. will always disrupt, you know, the flow of transportation. You know, 19 was a great story in terms of what disruption can look like. You know, we didn't have access to the Tulsa on the Arkansas. The Arkansas River was closed from May of 19 through October right. of 19. Because of the barge. The, the rivers got so high, then it silted in. Yeah. That, that, that's never happened. I, I, no one that I know has ever seen it go that long and not be able to get barges there. Right. At that same period, we couldn't unload barges at Palmyra starting like March 18th. And it was until June before we could unload at our dock at Palmyra. Yeah. We couldn't get north of St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. So just I to point this out, we moved a lot of tents from Crumbsville. We could still get barges there. Right. We yeah. shipped a lot to southwest Missouri. We shipped it. We were shipping uh, Super U up into Brunswick area. From, from Carruthersville. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, those three access points for us, they give us a lot of diversity. We, yeah. we were able to do a lot of yeah. things that other people couldn't because of the uh, assets that we have. You know, so there's always going to be some issue and challenge with, uh, with transportation. Yeah. And it just changes so quickly. You know, you, you're never going to be prepared for, you know, what what the next event will be. You just know that there is most likely going to be something. And you you just move that direction. And as those things present themselves, you just work around it the best you can. Right. You know, grain struggles with that a lot, too. Yeah. Um, we'll have a unit train booked to load out of Hamilton. And, you know, it's it slips on its time. The cruise service is not good, you know. So they have as many troubles, you know, as, as we do with logistics. Right. So, you know, we try to do the best we can with taking back calls, but a lot of times it doesn't work that well. You right. know, Grain wants to trade to St. Louis, but we need to move tons out of Palmyra. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Doesn't and, and, and grain volume dwarfs, you know, whatever our fertilizer numbers are. I don't, you know, I've, I've never right. really done the math, but how many truckloads of urea are there Per, you know, how much grain does that create? Probably 10, yeah. 10 or 15. So right. it's always way longer. Right, it's not one-to-one. -one. Yeah, it's not one-to-one. -one. And so then on the price side of things, um, last fall, we saw some pretty significant lows, right, in commodity fertilizer prices. What what kind of led to that? And then can you kind of pull that up into where we are now? And those are two somewhat polar opposite positions. Well, kind of walk us through what's going on there. It took a long time to get to those lows. Okay. You know, um, and, and as I always say, thinly traded markets act irrationally. You know, when we were talking about anhydrous, really your consumption to the ground is only 
50 days out of the year, maybe. Yeah. So the real trade, the real usage is a small period. It's not much different for dry, a little bit longer, right. but not much. Right. And so when you've got that, you know, that trade is really thin when, it's, when you're talking about real consumption. And so what will happen is it will either, you know, the price will get below where it should go, logically, and it goes higher than it should go. Yeah. So to tell the story of why prices got to the level they were last year, you have to back up into 18 and 19 because it took that long to build that length in our market domestically. You know, I was talking about we had a barge on the Arkansas that was trapped from May to June, to October. Yeah. You know, tons are still coming in. Contracts, plans were already set, you know, for, for tonnage to come in, whether it was phosphates, potash. You know, and what are you going to do with it? You know, you can't just flip that switch at a manufacturing level. No. And just stop no. all that. Right. No. Right. So all this thing kind of takes time to build up. The market just got long. It wasn't just in the U.S. It was that way globally, too. And so, you know, we get to these lows and then we finally hit the bottom last last summer and started started to move up. It didn't move up just here. You know, the rest of the world had a hand in this, too. Sure. You know, it's all relative. You know, we are a world market. And it doesn't matter what product you're talking about, whether we're talking about vessel freight or whether we're talking about fertilizer values or grain values. What goes on the rest of the world makes a difference whether we're seeing it or not or whether right. you're aware right. of it or not. Right. You know, I always say, I get a chuckle out of it. They talk, well, it's a global economy these days. So in 1492... You know, when Columbus, what was he trying to do? It was a, We've been a global economy since 1492. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We just don't think of it that way. But it, that's what that's how we developed, and that's how the rest of the world developed, too. Sure. So all that was going on at the same time. At the same time, you started to get China buying grain. And that tripped, that tripped a lot of this, too. Okay. That has as much to do with it as anything. Once that grain value started to rise, now there's more incentive for other people, you know, like in Brazil, to fertilize, to grow more crop. Okay. You know, it, it is pretty simplistic in the supply and demand. It's just such a large scale. and There's so many little components that, that pushed around that sometimes it gets complicated or you lose sight of that. But in the right. end, that's what drives it. Yeah. Right. So there's really more demand for the fertilizer. And that's what's, because like you said, Brazil, sure. Brazil is trying to, you know, maybe in, increase their grain um, quantity and stuff. So there's, and that's where it's really driving the price. For sure. It, it's a true supply and demand. It, I mean, just it, it economics is. 101. It I mean, is, it is. Now there's other things that, that will push that. Right. You know, like India subsidizes ag inputs, right? So that sort of makes that value a bit distorted because that's what they're doing. And, you know, that may seem kind of wonky, but how much of our corn goes into a method, um, mandated ethanol program? Sure. 35%. Right. Yeah. 35%. If you go pre-ethanol, pre we were only raising how many, what did we plant, 86 million? I don't, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, and now it's like, like 92 to 94. Sure, sure. So not yeah. only is it 36, it pushed our volume up that much. So, you know, <laughs> I remember one time, it's been several years ago, um, there was a dip in the urea market. I was talking to an industry guy and he goes, well, this, you know, this dip in the market, it's not real. I said, 
India spends $27 million a year on ag input subsidies. Our corn crop, 40% of it goes into a mandated ethanol program. What's real about any of this? Yeah. You know, yeah. so when we're talking about these values and, you know, economics 101, 101.2. Yeah. You know, because there's these other right. things that push it around. But ultimately, yeah, it's about supply and demand. Yeah. Yeah. And and by the time that, the you know, the manufacturers did start cutting back on their production, you know, they did t- try to idle it. But it, it's a big shift to steer. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, about the time they get it cut back, all of a sudden everything else ramps back up. And yeah. so yeah. that's where we are. And so what are you seeing now? And, and um, do me a favor and look in your crystal ball a little bit as far as um, emerging issues or anything that might significantly affect that market. We, we've got we've got high we've got high grain prices, higher grain prices than what we've seen over the last couple of years. But we also have higher commodity fertilizer prices. Where do you see those going? We, we seem to maybe have plateaued a little bit in the grain markets as of late. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is fair to say, on the commodity fertilizer blend stuff, do you see that same plateau? Um, do you see it continuing to go up? Because we're we're getting, like you said, it's a it's a three hundred traded three hundred sixty five days a year, but only utilized in a short period of time, and we're and we're we're driving up to that door right now. So, where do you see that going here in the in the coming? So you know, months? one of the things to be aware of, a year ago, Mosaic filed a countervailing duties against Russia and Morocco in that past. And so that means any of the phosphate tons that come from Russia or Morocco uh, will have a, du- a tariff. Okay. So basically it's a tariff. It's like anti-dumping. It's in the same department. All right. CF just made a filing for anti-dumping in the CBD countervailing duty on Russian UAN as well as Trinidad. So that, you know, that's sort of distorting the relative value. You know, we're, it's going to cost more for phosphates here than the rest of the world to some degree. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there that spread will stay priced into it regardless of whether we're high or low. Right. Um, you know, so that's changing the trade flow. And so that's going to change things in a way that we haven't seen before either. You know, we got more tons from Australia and Mexico last year than we have for a long time on phosphates. All that to say in that, you know, I'm not quite sure how that's going to shape out how values really trade out in the end but yeah the biggest thing is how much higher will corn go how long will that last yeah i say corn but i I mean that more figuratively in that you know all grains and commodities around the world are just higher right so palm oil that kind of thing soybeans but you know we need that to stay that way now i think in my opinion china's probably got more corn demand than they're letting on and I think that will continue. And as long as that continues, we're going to trade in these levels for a while. On the nearby, as you're looking through the fall, I can tell you if we have the same kind of demand and usage consumption that we had last fall, it will make the market tight and prices will probably go up. If we have a normal fall, maybe not. Okay. And maybe it stays sideways. If we have a weak fall, I think inventories are low enough it's not going to put nearby pressure on the pricing for length okay. in the you know of, mm-hmm. of DAP or potash. But the potash right now is the one that's probably got the most issues with its, you know, availability of product and its infrastructure. Okay. 
there's there's is that a long term thing you think or is that that kind of a... no no they'll overproduce and then okay. we'll be long again but okay. it just takes a while for that to happen they've right. got you know the Saskatchewan tons are marketed by this entity called Campitex and, and it's kind of like OPEC OPEC for potash gotcha. and so they've got that's this Campitex is the marketing arm uh, for potash Canadian Saskatchewan potash to go into Asia. And their obligations are such that, you know, they, they it's going to take them a while to get that all cleared. Mm-hmm. They're, they're sold into Asia. And so if they have any disruptions, like this mine uh, leak, it's going to make the market tight. You know, so Esther Hazy had a leak. They shut that mine down. They were going to idle it anyway, but it's just a little bit earlier. Yeah. You know, the other big thing is, you know, whether there's sanctions against Belarus and whether those tons can come here. And even if there's not the actual sanction, you know, people may get skittish enough that they, they just don't want to bring them because they don't want to take that risk. Yeah. Bringing tons in, they retro it back and then have to pay a penalty. Oh, man. Yeah. So that can that's happen. Bad. So, you know, watch what happens in Belarus. Huh. That's interesting. Because that's about 500 to 600,000 metric tons of potash for the U.S. Wow. market. Yeah. yeah. Is, it, is it a lot? In the scheme of all that we use, no, but it will change what the market. No, does. but when you start yeah. so, when you start talking such high volumes, just yeah. like you know, is cutting U.S. corn production ten percent a lot? Eh, probably not. I mean, maybe, maybe not. But right. when, but when you're utilizing fully utilizing all of that product, then yeah, ten you know, ten percent hole in the bag is is big. Yeah. That's right. You know, same right. same principle right. there. So you know, my biggest thing is um, in our business the the most. Influential things are the weather and governments, and yeah. these predictable governments. Yeah, <laughs> that's, Be, because whatever that's they decide will happen overnight. A yeah. weather pattern develops, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we will have fall. We will have spring. Yeah. But right. a countervailing duty, a tariff, a sanction. Yeah, man, that can it's going to hit you. Out that could be tomorrow. Yeah, sure could be. Yeah, sure could be. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, just you know, one thing, and I don't know where we're going to follow up on this and finish up. But I would say, you know, looking at fall fertility, you know, we've talked a lot about prices. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like they're going to swing back very low, very quickly. Commodity prices are up. Um, when you're looking at fall fertility, we definitely need to make sure that we're still pushing that and understanding that, like we said, freight, all these logistics that we've covered here so far today, it's not going to have a quick swing. And you could say, hey, I can hold on till the spring. You know, I can sell my grain. I can hold on to the spring. Things are going to go down. That's right. What we've discussed today, that's not going to happen. So we didn't. We need to make sure we're understanding that. Utilizing well, the fall for fertility is still going right. to, it's going to be great for us in the long end because of logistics. Because if you try to back thing, everything in the spring, you're going to end up with shortages and you're going to have problems because of the freight trading, right? Because we're going to be short on trucks. You're going to have... We only have so much storage in the spring, right? So why not utilize it in the fall? Right. Well, I think you know, t- to put brackets around that a little bit. Look, I think all things are possible. You know, can it go down? Yeah. The right. likelihood of that, the odds of that, are low. But you know, from what we see today, if you're going to bank on well, prices will be lower in the spring. Mm, I don't think I would. I don't. The odds of that are lower right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, what happens this fall can dictate that. Sure. But ultimately, the, the, the challenge that we have as MFA, and this is why I'm a big proponent of, you know, moving fall tonnage, at least P and K, it's a good practice at the farm gate, right? Oh, yeah. The farm level. There's, there's really 
No doubt. A about lot that. of probably more compelling reasons to do fall work yes. than there are spring right. for yes. P and K. We move about five hundred thousand tons through our retail system. Do you know how much we do in the fall? Like hundred thousand at best. And we do the other four hundred thousand in spring. If we're gonna grow our business, we're gonna to have to grow those fall tons. There's only so many trucks in the spring. There's yeah. only so much rail house, there's or rail, there's only so much barge, there's only so much warehouse. You know, to your point, you're gonna have these infrastructure issues. Yep. And and if you wanna, you know, kick that can down the road and try to do all your fertilizing in the spring, well, are we gonna have the right kind of weather? Yeah. Yeah. You know, particularly for P and K. You know, we'll figure a way to get nitrogen on to some degree, but the yeah. P and K get lost. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know that, you know, that that's the best thing to do in the grain environment that we have as far as like its value. I think yeah. you're going to want to raise as much as you probably can. And I would suspect that our P and K levels are, are not where they need to be, you know, no. in the in the Missouri and our Broad scale, no. Yeah, broad scale, no. And, and you're exactly right. And we honestly probably should just do another fall fertility podcast because this is a deep hole. But when, when you want to look at climatically and all those things yeah. about what's going on, uh, when we're getting rainfall events, the weather, all those kind of variables. Um, yes. I mean, you should, we definitely should be fall. I mean, it, you're, you're lessening from the sounds of all the infrastructure and logistical issues. You're also, it seems like probably mitigating risk a little right. bit. Um, not just on the weather front and application front, but on the price front from waiting until that, you know, um, that log jam, if you will, in the spring. And so, yeah. Well, it's just like, you know, with the anhydrous, to go back to that in just a second, you know, some, some, every year we could have a disaster logistically. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we don't. Sure. Right. Sure. You don't know until that day how it's going to play out. Yep. Why Why wouldn't you want to hedge some of that risk? Yep. Why wouldn't you want to take some of that off the table? You know, it's sort of like investing, you know, dollar cost averaging. If you think you're going to beat the market, I, I think it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And, and I would I would suspect that most people don't really go back and measure how well they did on their buying or what their input costs are. And, and the other part to me is, you know, it just seems like so many people look at it as, well, the price of my fertilizer. What we don't look at enough is the spread between the fertilizer cost and what you can sell that grain for Yeah. or that commodity. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that, that's really what people should be looking at, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and the farmer's got the ability to do that, to manage their risks that way. Mm-hmm. And, and they've got tools that just don't work for us to mitigate yeah. risk. And yet I don't think many of them do. Yeah. Definitely not enough. I, I I think I think not enough folks are are engaged. We get so folks get so burnt out in the commodity market of, of grain sales and, and trying to keep up on my goodness that giant animal of, of trying to make those right decisions and and you're right. We don't look back at at the commodity nature of inputs and say when's I mean, until you get to a certain size, I guess right. it, you, it's something you're probably not paying as much attention to. You just kind of do it when you know when when it needs to be done. Right. Yeah. But but we probably should be mitigating that risk too. I'm not saying I'm not ex, you know making excuses. I'm just you know. Well, I I think people tend to look at it as you know singular events, right? Right. I'm buying my fertilizer. Yeah. I'm selling my grain. They yeah. don't look at it as you know one transaction. They right. look at it as two separate transactions. Absolutely. 
And, and I think the ones, the producers that I know of that are successful tend to look at it in that holistic way. You know, I know several cap, you know, ranchers in Missouri that row crop. They're the integrated sort of business, if you will. Yeah. And, they, and that's what they do. They look at the whole. Yeah. You know, they don't just buy their fertilizer when it's time to buy fertilizer. Right. They're looking at its value or they know what that value is sure. and they know they're going to have to yeah. get it done. Yeah. And I think if we do that and help our growers move that direction, it's going to be good for them. And it's going to be good for us too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that all comes back to understanding, like we've talked about before in a previous podcast, is understanding what your production cost is per acre of your operation. Right. Is understanding that. So you can have an idea of, okay, the grain market is here, but the fertilizer market's here. That's fine because I know what my cost of production is per acre. So I'm going to be able to ma manage that spread. Right. And it's going to be just fine. Right. And so, and, and it's not just, you know, it's not just ag that, you know, I'm going to use another example of flights. I, I remember I was talking to someone, you know, about flying out of Columbia. And I said, well, you know, it's pretty cool that we got this flight now to Denver. This is, you know, before yeah things kind of slowed down in that economy. But, you know, they were like, oh, well, that, you know, that ticket was like $300 or $400. They're like, that's kind of expensive. You know, do the math on what it's going to cost you to drive out there. And if you yeah. really charge yourself the 50 cents per mile, sure, you know, it's 900. It's going to cost you at least uh, $500 to drive out there yep. or more right. plus your time. And I'm like, it's just interesting how people want to look at value and how they evaluate it. Yep. Yep. You know, so Correct. we struggle and we, we need to move on. So I'm going to be brief. <laughs> no, 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 but I, I'm with you and, and ag, we struggle extremely hard to value our time. Yeah. I think we do as a whole, like you said, that you sitting in the driver's seat of a car, just your car driving mm -hmm. to Denver, your time has value. Right. And, and in ag, I think a lot of times we're like, nah, I got a, you know, I got a combine sitting in the shed, yeah, yeah. you know, what, like it doesn't cost me that much to do, to do anything, you know? Well, it, it does, right? I mean, right. it's wear and tear on equipment. It's like, what is an hour? I mean, my goodness, you can go work at McDonald's yeah. for $16 an hour yeah. now. Like right. your time has value. Right. It has a right. lot of value. Well, there's that. And then just because, you know, you're driving to Denver, you know, you're putting the gas in it and you think that's your yeah. only expense. No, yeah. it's not. No, you no. Know. You stop and eat two cheeseburgers on the way. Well, just yeah. the cost of the vehicle. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. so You're so putting, try to think exactly. of things in those other terms and evaluate that. And I, I think it's interesting that, you know, we spend a lot of time with agronomy. And I think that, you know, we need to. Yeah. But we don't spend near as much time thinking about the, you know, the business economic side yep. of it. Yep. I agree completely. Okay. Let's move on to trivia game. Okay. We got a donation to MFA cares uh charity uh, at risk here and uh i've got some questions that we'll go over the, here's the one thing you guys need you need okay. a bell <laughs> so whoever you know, yeah we probably do you we probably do um but uh i'm gonna have you guys write down answers on your papers there um i've okay. got five questions fertilizer driven questions chris okay just, just just to make sure that uh, i hope i didn't make them too easy for you guys okay but uh, if you can beat Cameron, uh, I do have a tiebreaker as well. If you can beat Cameron, uh, we'll make a donation to Ronald McDonald's house here. So uh, plan for all the marbles. All right, we would. Question one. Uh, after the extirpation or during the extirpation of the American bison, 
Those bones were collected and used as a fertilizer source of what plant nutrient? So before a lot of that land could be farmed after on native sod, folks went around, picked up all those bones, shipped them back east. They used them as fertilizer of what plant nutrient? We got a name? Everybody got it? Right. Cameron? Mm -hmm. Phosphorus. Phosphorus? Phosphate. Phosphate. So, a little trivia for you. That's what they call Tampa. They call it Bone Valley. Yep. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, you don't. It wasn't, it wasn't bison. It was shark bones. And okay. Bones. Yeah. But that's where that's that phosphate deposit yeah. comes from. Yeah. 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 Yep. All right. Another question, I'm going to give you the uh, multiple choice on this one. Okay. Soil organic matter contributes all of the following for good plant nutrition, except, so you're looking for the one that it doesn't, uh, A, nitrogen, B, phosphorus, C, potassium, D, sulfur, or E, most micronutrients. So which one of those does soil organic not contribute for good plant nutrition? We got answers? <laughs> what is your guess? My guess is uh, the, the micronutrients. Okay. I have potassium. Potassium is correct. <sighs> so most micronutrients, nitrogen, sulfur, phosphorus, all coming off of soil organic matter. Most potassium, um, probably the most variable by soil type. And so some soils right. are better at, um, at allowing the plant to pull that potassium off the soil colloid and, and some aren't. So and correct a lot of, answer. And a lot of potassium is flushed out of organic matter. So like corn stalks, when yep. the residue is left Quickly over, it's flushed out. Before it becomes organic matter. Correct. Before yes. it becomes organic matter, yep. it's flushed out with the rains and stuff. And so it's deposited yep. in the soil. Okay. Hmm. All right. Next question. A soil test measures what kind of nutrients? Total nutrients, plant available nutrients, fertilizer applied nutrients, organic nutrients, or all of the above. With a soil test. Are we measuring total nutrient, plant available nutrient, fertilizer applied nutrients, organic nutrients, or all of them? You're getting into these like agronomy areas. That, I know. You know I'm, I'm I tried to, to be. I tried to be good to you, Chris. It's uh, so. I these, think, are, these are fun because I think like folks like literally Cameron sitting here shaking it or shaking his head, which 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 tells me I picked a good question. <laughs> I think folks listening might might learn something off of this, right? Yeah. Well, we would hate to have that happen. <laughs> I, I think my answer is I think it could do all the above because I think it depends on the type of test you request. Okay. That's that is. Probably technically correct, but when we're talking about like a fertility test, Cameron, what does that measure? Uh, it measures plant available. That's yeah. correct. Yes, plant available nutrients is what we're measuring. So they're using like for a phosphorus test, for example, sure. um, putting an acid, trying to uh, uh, trying to replicate what plant roots do, and pulling phosphorus out of that so at soil. Right, and that's, that's why correct. most soil tests don't measure sulfur or nitrogen because. It's so variable Correct. and it, it changes variable daily. In, in what I mean, is plant available. Correct. Absolutely. Okay. Third one's a math question. Both of you guys have a calculator with you. I know because I saw iPhones laying on the table. Okay. What weight of urea, and I'm going to allow you guys to know what percentage of in urea is. What weight of urea is required to apply 138 pounds of actual N per acre? So if I want to play 138 pounds of N with urea, how much product do I need to apply? I'm not going to give you the multiple choice. <laughs> <laughs> just, just because I'm mean like that. 
Cameron, how much? 300 pounds of product. What'd you have, Chris? Uh, it, yeah, it would have to be because it's about half. Yeah, you know, it's fifty percent, so it would be close to forty six percent. So yeah. urea forty six oh oh, and so yes, so we're gonna take one hundred and thirty eight divided by 0.46, and you get three hundred pounds. Yeah, correct. That's exactly what you did, right, Cameron? That's right. Okay. <laughs> Last question: All nitrogen fertilizer, and this this one you guys should get because Chris literally talked about it during the podcast, and I was like, oh no, he answered the question. Um, all nitrogen fertilizer begins with a source of hydrogen gas and atmospheric nitrogen that are reacted to form ammonia. The most used source of hydrogen in that reaction is what? You talked about it. The most used source? The most used source of hydrogen gas to make that reaction is what? So you're, you're taking the hydrogen gas mm -hmm, and right. reacting it with atmospheric nitrogen right. to form ammonia. Correct. That's where we get... And he, he talked about it. And that's so done the in the Haber-Bosch process. Yeah. Yep. yep. So the most the, used source the most, of that hydrogen gas. I would assume you're saying natural gas. Natural gas. Okay. Oh, yeah. So it's, car <laughs> it's always carbon-based. Yes. Correct. And so the, the methane in yeah. natural gas. Right. Is, yep. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Now, now, actually, the Germans use coal. Right. Haber-Bosch right. started with coal. Right. Right. Okay. And, and, and the company that owned that technology was BASF. Really? Do you know that? I did not know that. That's interesting. See? All right. You didn't get him, Chris. The staff agronomist got you he, this time. He did. I need That's to good. I need to um, I should have dug down further in the in the question vault and got something that would have tripped him up. <laughs> I'll work on that for next good. time. I'll work on that for next time. He's pretty good, but hopefully you guys had fun with that. It's um, it's fun to just go over stuff. Like I said, we we talked about things that um, Sometimes they're not so intuitive. So um, hopefully we answered some stuff for folks. Yep. Chris, thanks for taking the time to jump on here, man. We've we've gone long, but I think it was super interesting. Our conversation was super interesting. And so I have no issues with that. Um, I appreciate you coming in. We'll probably have you back to talk about um, other things in the future. And definitely just appreciate your time. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I hope, I hope people get something out of it. I hope that it helps. Uh, them understand things. Maybe I think so, because, you know, we, uh, again, we think that, you know, you just, you kind of ignore the stuff you can't see in the background, right? Correct. When you go in that green building, it's always stacked up in the bay. And sure. We don't always think about, number one, the steps that got it there and, and kind of where it came from. And, and some folks kind of have been using products for years and years that we don't fully understand. Yeah, you know, and, and talking about the steps, it would be interesting sometime if we listed out just all the different things that we have to do and the people involved just to get it to the ground. It's yeah. a lot. Yeah. It is a yeah. lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and even just breaking down the freight, it's a lot of freight. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely. just getting stuff to, you know, our locations or whatever, but then you go right. ahead and add on the whole thing. I mean, if yeah. you, just like you said, if we put a whole list together of, just for a producer of the whole list of people and what had to be gone from getting your fertility in your ground to your crops in the ground all the way through harvest, it would take, well, I don't even know how long it would take. It would take a very long time. We got this air the warehouse. You got yep. unloading. Yep. You know, accounting. Absolutely. You know, all those things add up. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, thank yep. you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank thanks, you, Chris. Guys. We appreciate it. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.